welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was The Foundations and the Writings on the Wall from 1967. And that's because I've got the Foundations lead guitarist here, Alan Warner, to talk about his career from the Foundations and beyond today. Huge welcome, Alan. Hi, Jason. <laughs> Thanks for inviting us on. It's a real pleasure. And you've got an interesting backstory even prior to the Foundations. Your formative years were actually spent playing in Ireland, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. I played around with a few uh, semi-pro groups. And uh, I went went over to Ireland when I was about, I think I was 17. There's a couple of uh, Irish guys and a couple of English guys. And we uh, we all went over to Dublin uh, with the idea of, um, first of all, playing all the big halls over there. But um, they had a thing called the Irish Federation, which um, they only really allowed. You, you had to join this Irish Federation. You know, it cost quite a bit of money as well at the time. And we thought, mm, can't really afford that. You know? <laughs> so uh, anyway, the club scene was opening up at the time. So we... Uh, we ended up doing all the clubs in and around Dublin. But we did manage to get out and do some big hauls um, up and down Southern Ireland as well. Well, in fact, we were we were going for about a year. It was quite successful. But um, after a while, I just got homesick. <laughs> I just wanted to come home again. <laughs> but I had a great time over there, though. Eventually, it led into the path that became the foundations. But you had lineup changes and some... Was that was Arthur Brown in, in the group? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was with us for about oh seven or eight weeks. He came along, uh, all dressed up in his. He had a. It's quite um, a gentleman actually. He did nothing like the uh, God of Hellfire. <laughs> he came along. He's very polite. He had a tweed jacket. He didn't smoke. Didn't drink. Didn't take drugs. <laughs> I thought, ah, yeah. And late, later on, he becomes the God of Hellfire. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but a uh, lovely bloke, absolutely fantastic guy, you know. But um, he, uh, of course, he had his own sort of ideas. You know, he was getting away from the uh, soul sort of thing. And, uh, you know, he wanted to, well, I say soul. I mean, he was singing songs like, you know, I put a spell on you and things like that. He had a fantastic yeah. voice, absolutely fantastic, really powerful. Didn't you try and get Rod Stewart in the group at one time? Yeah, well, that's another one. He actually did come down because when we was running the uh, basement club in um, Westbourne Grove in London, he came down. We had a great time with him. We went through loads and loads of songs, you know. But he just said, in fact, before he even started, really, he did say that, you know, he's getting, again, because he was into a lot of this soul and R&B stuff. But um, he was saying as well, you know, he's, he, he wanted to move move into a different direction, which obviously he did. And uh, but it was great, you know, we all got on really well, and it's um, you know we remained friends after that. And uh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> and you were based around was it the Butterfly Club in that period? Yeah, what it was that was just an old gambling den in, in the basement. It was. Um, yeah, we we took that over and uh, we just turned it into a like a club that we could we weren't allowed we wasn't allowed to uh, sell alcohol or anything so it all had to be soft drinks and you know just snacks and stuff like that but it it was just a way of us you know sort of surviving of course we'd be rehearsing during the day or, or night or whatever well main mainly during the daytime you know so uh, and then you get the punters coming along, all these youngsters and young hooligans, and 
<laughs> some of them were musicians, some of them were artists, some were just want to come along for the heck of, heck of it, you know, and uh, yeah, it's quite a buzzing little place, actually. Is that what led you down the path to for Tony McCauley to spot you, or was it a different route? Well, what it was, um, this basement club was actually in a um, like a, a block uh, of offices and things. It was like a, a mini cab office above us. Above that was the, the guy that actually owned the building, a guy called Barry Class. But he had a colleague called uh, Ron Fairway. And um, Ron Fairway was the one that had a few sort of music contacts. And Barry Class wanted to get more into the, the pop business. I suppose, I suppose he sort of saw loads of bucks coming in there, you know. So um, Ron Fairway came down and, and he heard us one one night and um, he uh, said, oh, you know, this, this sounds really good. I'll report back to Barry Class. And uh, anyway, he kept promising to get us these gigs and they never really happened, you know, and this went on for a couple of months or so. But what he did do, he, he went along to um, Pyre Studios because he knew the A&R man there, Tony McCauley, and um, he said he would like you to try out a song of his. So we um, we went along to this um, room at the back of this pub and uh, we ran over this song. It was all a bit rough around the edges, but the song turned out to be Baby Now That I Found You. Tony McCauley was a bit nervous about us because, as I said, we, we were rather rough around the edges. But anyway, we went along to the studio and uh, recorded Baby Now That I Found You and uh, took a good few weeks, but it finally got into the charts and uh, started climbing. Because uh, we was one of the uh, BBC's first, um, it was like um, a kind of a, an answer to the um, Radio Caroline and all the pirate stations. BBC felt threatened, so uh, they decided to do the same sort of thing themselves, you know. And uh, so we got in the uh, into the BBC playlist. What was it like? I mean, pop stars and and that magic combination of quite a, a poppy sound of songwriting, but actually the more soulful edge gave it a little bit of a rougher hue that actually sort of really added to it. Yeah, the, although there were a few soul bands around at the time, we were doing stuff that was a bit different. I mean, the other bands were doing all the well-known stuff like Midnight Hour, Knock on Wood, uh, you know, and all these kind of things. And um, But we, we were getting these American imports. Our singer, um, he knew a few guys that worked on the air bases and things, you know, and they they were bringing these um, imports over. And so we had access to these uh, soul records that no one had heard of over here. And uh, so, we, you know, we had quite a few things going on there. And so it made it sound like we were doing our own material in a way, you know, so that set us apart. So um, we thought, well, or Tony McCauley thought, well, yeah, it's a soul band, but let's give it a more commercial sort of an edge to it. And it just worked out perfectly with uh, Baby Now I Found You. It was really, really quite exciting time for us.
Beckham, I think, again, repeated the formula. Yeah, that was the second one, yeah. And, uh, and then we tried the same again with uh, any old time Elonian sad, but um, uh, sadly, <laughs> that one didn't <laughs> quite uh, get us. So I think I got to number 25 or something. But it was around that time that our first lead singer decided, because he wanted it to be called um, Clem Curtis and the Foundations, which, of course, we... You know, we didn't see any point in that at all. So uh, he just uh, said, oh, well, um, I'm leaving then. So so he left the band and we got another singer in, Colin Young. And then, of course, the next thing, uh, we had a hit with uh, Build Me Up Buttercup. Yeah. Which was uh, really huge. It got to number one in America, and mo- most of the countries in the world. When was it you uh, went on the package tour with... Um... Was it Stevie Wonder and the Bee Gees? Was that was that earlier? Yeah, we did. Um, we did the the first. In, I think the first one was actually Stevie Wonder. So that was on the Stevie Wonder tour. The other guy that was on it was Emperor Roscoe, ah. the DJ. Yeah, I mean that was a great tour. I mean, you know, we we got on really well with Stevie and uh, and these these musicians who were superb. They just fed us loads of encouragement, you know, because I knew you're great, you guys, you know, and. Uh, and, you know, you'd have thought they would have been a bit sort of up their noses sort of thing, you know, but they, they really treated us really well. and We got on fantastically with them. I think the next one was the Bee Gees tour. That was with the Bee Gees, a band called Grapefruit. Oh. And there was another, I can't remember the other one now. Oh, the other the other tour was um, with Dave, Dave D, Dozy, Beacon, Mick and Titch. That's right. Yeah. So we did a few tours, yeah, a few package tours. Because the Bee Gees and Grapefruit have got the sort of NEMS and Beatles, Epstein connection, and you were signed to NEMS for a short period, weren't you? Yeah, we were, yeah. And then, then of course, uh, Brian Epstein died. Um, so after that, we uh, we went on with the, um, joined up with the Robert Stigwood agency. And Robert Stigwood was, was uh, handling um, the Bee Gees. Uh, that's how we got the tour, actually, Robert Stigwood, because yeah. he's the one that put the tour on. Yeah. So you kept in the same stable as it morphed into the sort of Stigwood side of things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then after that, we went over to America, did a couple of tours over there, done about uh, three Canadian tours, I think it was. Yeah, we must have covered most of the ground. (laughs) Yeah!
That was Mike Darbo and Tony McCauley this time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, in actual fact, uh, Mike Darbo, he's actually playing the piano on it as well. So uh, <laughs> we can say that we've um, played along with Mike Darbo. <laughs> I've got a gig coming up with oh. him soon as well. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, so so uh, he'll be singing it. But the trouble is he, he brings a key down. In, uh. He brings it down to a flat key. So, <laughs> just to make it awkward. <laughs> what were the recording sessions like in, in that time? Was it quite a quick process? Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, when we when we recorded Baby Night I Found You, we did kind of do, it was a bit like, like a recording test, if you like, a bit like a screen test where you go along and they see what you like. And what we did, we, we actually recorded about half a dozen uh, songs. Now. We didn't know at the time, but those songs ended up being on our first album. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they sort of added a few overdubs, you know, but basically that was it. You know, that's how quick it was. I mean, we did all them songs in a day. And so that was like half an album done already before we even became famous. <laughs> anyway, when, when we did the first album, we, you know, there's a few other songs that we included. And I think that was all done within about a week. Wow. Amazing, not like nowadays. <laughs> um, and of course, we didn't have that technology then. We had um, back then they were using two four-track tape machines, and they were running in sync with each other. So you'd have two four-track machines to make it eight tracks. And we thought, wow, eight tracks, blow! How are we going to use all those? <laughs> it's incredible. The engineer was great you know and um the production of it you know is really i mean when you hear it today i still think it really you know for yeah. for those minimal tracks i still think it sounds really powerful you know it's amazing yeah. and when we did uh, build me up buttercup they'd moved up to uh, 16 tracks which was all done on the, just one machine by then and then after that of course it went to 32 tracks then 48 tracks. <laughs> How many tracks do you have nowadays on computers? It's endless, <laughs> it's isn't it? endless. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. What do you do with all those tracks? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the issue, isn't it? But Build Me Up Buttercup, from the, the moment it was released as it built up and topped the charts and to now has been, it's ever-present. It's, ever, it's always there. And the interesting thing for me was seeing the, the Beatles get back yeah. and then you've got, Paul McCartney entering the studio, singing it. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that? 
Have you seen that I'd, clip? I'd heard about it over the years, and I thought I'd heard about these things where they were making. Yeah, it was it was when it get back, and I'd heard about it, and I I started scouring the internet to see if I could find it, and I couldn't. I mean, it it kept getting mentioned, but I never actually. But now they brought this. Um, is it a documentary or something? They film or whatever. Yeah, and and of course I I've actually heard it now. <laughs> it's quite comical the way he's singing it. <laughs> Paul McCartney singing "Build Me a Buttercup." <laughs> Incredible. But it's had a life of its own. It, it, it's soundtrack films and yeah. it's a song that will never go away from even from that oh, moment. Yeah, I mean it's just uh, I mean. There's loads of different. I mean, even the New York Dolls singer, even he sung it. And uh, was that Amy Winehouse? Um, was it jo- uh, the one with Baby Shambles? What was his name? Uh, even he recorded it. I'm trying to think. Doherty. Pete Doherty. Pete Doherty. He, he sang it. Wow. And also recently, uh, famous boxer. What was his name? Uh, Tyson Fury. Yeah. There's even video of him singing it. <laughs> <Just incredible. laughs> so you've got a big burly boxer singing Build Me Up Buttercup. Just madness. Wow. <laughs> incredible. Amazing. Thought, you know, back then, you know, recording this thing, we thought, oh, well, you know, it will hopefully get in the charts, you know, and a few weeks later it'll all be forgotten. But, of course, um, it's still around now. <laughs>
and you mentioned touring the states but that was a huge huge song in in america as well oh yeah i mean the tour in the states is a game changer it takes a while to make money over there i mean you, you need to do several tours you know to to really make your mark you know but the thing is when we first went over there there was um there was the racial riots and um so a lot of all of our in fact all of our southern gigs had to all be uh cancelled you know so that unfortunately put a kibosh on the first one we did we did do the tour but obviously with you know not so many dates um but the next one we did was was really fantastic you know it's um especially because by then we had build me up buttercup was number one in the charts and uh yeah, that was just phenomenal. It was brilliant. Absolutely. You must have been pleased that you had the, the flip, the B-side of Build Me Up Buttercup with New Direction as well. And that showed a different side to the group, the song that you co-wrote and was written within the yeah, band. Yeah, was... Psychedelic soul, really. Oh, no, it was just totally so Because we did keep on it, Tony McCauley. Look, we love your songs and we love recording them, but it would be nice to be able to write some of our own songs. So uh, I got together with a couple of other guys and we thought, you know, it's like this new direction thing, you know. And as you say, it, it's kind of soul and psychedelic, you know, and it's, uh, it's a bit weird. We was trying to create those um, psychedelic sounds in the studio and uh, the engineer was, he was very um, uh, helpful about that. You know, he didn't try and sort of say, oh, don't you, you know, because <laughs> some of them could be a bit snooty back then, you know, but this one... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try and get that psychedelic sound for you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Totally, totally different from Build Me Up Buttercup, of course. <laughs> yeah. So the the albums and some of the B-sides was your opportunity to to have some of your own material out there as well? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We, it was mainly album um, albums and B-sides. But, oh, there was, um, there was one there. Was it the um, final foundation uh, single? It was one of the five. It was uh, Born to Live and Born yeah. to Die. That was written by our trombone player, Eric Allendale. And um, I'm trying to try and think where that got to now. Um, it was a min- minor hit, I recall. Yeah. But also, um, not many people know that um, the foundation recorded songs that other artists actually covered. For example... Probably the most famous one would have been um, Let the Heartaches Begin. Uh, the Foundation has recorded it on an album and um, Long John Baldry uh, recorded it and, of course, he had a number one with it. So, uh, <clears throat> and same with um, other ones were um, That Same Old Feeling. Pickety Witch. Um, that was uh, one of our album tracks. Yeah. Pickety Witch recorded it and had a hit with it. B-side of Back on My Feet again was um, I Can Take or Leave Your Loving. <laughs> and again, uh, Herman's Hermits recorded it. <laughs> Funny enough, I'm doing some gigs with uh, Carl Green soon, oh, yeah. the original bass player of Herman's Hermits. So we got some gigs coming up together. So there are no hard feelings between us. <laughs> <laughs> so have a good laugh Not about it. <laughs>
In the bad, bad old days, even Edison Lighthouse did their own version. But I think, but at least you took uh, that song into the top ten this time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to sort of ask you about a few things that are on the internet, and and as with things on the internet, you never know whether there's truth in there. Mm-hmm. I've read that um, there was the possibility of some sort of Foundations TV show at the time. Is there any truth in that? Uh, I seem to remember something going on at the time, but. Um... Nothing. Uh, we were supposed to be making a film. That was it. But it uh, it never really developed. <clears throat> I don't know what happened with that. I can tell you though that there's a rumor. Well, I say a rumor, and I don't know how true this is because I've tried to follow this up as well. But the Foundations were the first band to have the White Album because they released the Foundations album in South Africa at the time, yeah. which of course was segregated, and um, from what I heard, and as I say, I can't verify this, but uh, they decide obviously they didn't want the black and white people on the front of the album, so they it was just a white album. So we had that out before the Beatles, but I don't know, I can't say for 100% because I've never actually traced it. <laughs> so that's another little bit of useless information there. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was the foundations and the equals in that period that were pioneers of, of a, a multiracial band. Yeah, yeah, the foundations were the first multiracial band and uh, the equals straight after. It's funny enough, I did a gig with the equals the other night. 
in um, Lincolnshire, and uh, so I had a picture taken with the um, uh, bass player Pat Pat Lloyd. Uh, <laughs> it was really great seeing each other again. But mind you, it was it was kind of friendly rivalry back then. You know, we'd sort of we'd sort of turn up at an airport or something, and they'd be we'd be coming back from somewhere, or they'll be just taking off, and we'd be sort of glaring at each other. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was all in. It was all good fun. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've read that the band's relationship with Tony McCauley or, or Tony McCauley's relationship was not always completely harmonious. It was, was quite that? fraught, actually. Yes, it was. Um, because as I say, we were a bit rough around the edges, you know, and um and I mean there were I mean there was eight of us at the time, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of and we we're all different ages as well. I mean, the oldest guy in the band was um well he was about 40 odd, you know, uh, sax- in those days that was old. Oh, that was old. <laughs> Funny enough, I found out the other day that he's still around. Wow. He celebrated his 90th or 90 something birthday. The other day, I couldn't believe it. But as I say, yeah, it's all a bit unruly, you know, and there was a bit of, um, you know, trying to get people out of bed and all this kind of stuff, you know. But um, we always got through it in the end, you know. I mean, we, we managed to do the albums. We've done all the singles and, you know, and um, but Tony McCauley, I think he he was a bit of a nervous wreck at the end of it, bless him. <laughs> But he, he was only a young guy. I mean, he was only early 20s, you know, which, uh, I mean, he went on to write loads of songs, you know, hit songs after that. You know, I mean, he's very, very talented. Very, he knew, he knew what um, the public wanted sort of thing.
So it was about around 1970 that the group split? Yeah, around about then. we I, I think our last one, if I remember right, was uh, we actually recorded a, a song called Take a Girl Like You. I can't remember who wrote it now, actually. But it was, um, it was especially for the film Take a Girl Like You, which um, featured um, Hayley Mills and um, Oliver Reed, Noel Harrison, Amy McDonald. She was in it as well. It's quite a, quite a funny sort of film, actually. And we thought, oh, this is it. All those big stars in it. It's going to be a huge hit, this. But unfortunately, it wasn't to be. The, the film was a bit of a flop, you know, so... It was a shame, really. It was quite a good single as well, very catchy. But um, no, just didn't click for some reason. And at the same time, you were listening to more rockier or different sounds? Yeah, I mean, because I, I mean, I, I'd always been more into the rock and blues kind of stuff before, uh, a bit of country as well, you know. Um, I mean, just general pop stuff, you know. But, um, I, I wanted to... Uh, do some of my own songs as well, you know, and um, this is where um, a band called Pluto, we, we uh, got together and um, the band was already formed, actually, but I replaced the uh, the guitarist and um, they had um guy on drums, Terry Sullivan, but he went on to uh, join Renaissance. Yeah. Um, so he's with them for quite a, quite a few years. So he was replaced by um, a guy called Derek Jervis. And uh, the bass player uh, was a guy called uh, Mick Worth. And uh, so the four of us, we um, started scouting around for a recording contract. And we did a few gigs with, uh, you know, like supporting people like Fairport Convention, Lindisfarne, Genesis, you know, a few others. And uh, Old oh, Deep Purple, that was another one. And, um, we got uh, this recording contract and um, brought out our first album, which was surprisingly enough called Pluto. <laughs> but um, originally Pluto was um, based on the Walt Disney character, Pluto the dog, but Disney threatened to sue us. <laughs> so uh, we had to change our name. We thought, what are we going to do? We still want it to be called Pluto. And so I, I came up with the idea, what about Pluto the planet? Because I don't think anyone owns that planet. So uh, we thought, yeah, okay, why not? That's it. Uh, in actual fact, the first album, the well, the one and only album, in fact, was um, it had a picture of, I don't know, again, I, I'm not sure how true this is, but there was a booker at the Terry King Agency. The, those are the ones that are getting us all the gigs and stuff. Dude. The booker was a really big, burly bloke with a beard. And uh, they got a picture on the front of the Pluto album with this big burly kind of um, thunder god kind of character carrying this naked woman. But blimey, it does. It does look like that booker. <laughs> <laughs> you were on vocals and you were songwriting uh, typified by Road to Glory there. So you you had much more of a direct role in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, our... our um, producer wasn't so um he wasn't that sympathetic to our kind of music but he, he went along with it you know and um he didn't give us much of a free reign i mean we'd like to have spent a bit more time on it and um you know so uh it had to be done on a budget and fairly quickly you know 
but yeah, we we wrote the songs together, mainly myself and uh, Paul Gardner.
it was going to do really well because we, 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 Terry King Agency sent us out on a, a, a tour of the country and it was full of dates up and down the country. Oh, right, this is great. You know, we can really promote this album now. So um, the first week or two, it was great, you know, and and the sales were starting to really pick up. But then the uh, miners' strike came about, and uh, of course, every time we turned up at a gig, there's no power, so we couldn't perform. I mean, this went on for a few weeks, and um, unfortunately, the uh, it affected our album sales, and uh, that was it. Really, you know, we we sort of struggled on for another about another year, I suppose, and then we just split up after that which was a shame, you know, because we had a lot of uh, a lot of great ideas and stuff, you know, but uh, wasn't to be. But years later, we, uh, in fact, a couple of years ago, myself and Paul, we completed a Pluto album, which we'd started in the, um, in the 90s. And uh, a record company uh, came along and asked us, it'd be great if you could, if you've got any songs. To, we said, well, we've already got, Half the songs are already kind of half done, you know, so so it's already off to a good start. So that's what we did. We we got together and went into a studio in um, Wiltshire, was it? I think it was. White Farm or something it's called, yeah. uh, studios. And um, so we we finished this album, which we started God knows how many years ago. <laughs> that's really going really well at the moment. So uh, oh, and then, of course, COVID hit. So we couldn't launch that properly because of COVID. There's the, um, what they have, the record something day, didn't they? Yeah. Where they all, you know, that all that all that had to be postponed. So there's another, another jinx on us. But anyway, fortunately, it does seem to be selling really well. So <laughs> Good. And going back to that debut album, when you listen to She's Innocent, for example, I mean, that was the period of like the who. And, and She's Innocent has got that acoustic, electric yeah, guitar yeah. mix yeah. and as you say it seems it seems like the sound was the right thing and it's just that events were conspiring against you yeah that's right yeah it's um yeah we, we was both trying to be different you know m- myself and paul i mean our, our songwriting styles were totally different from each other really paul was the one he, he used to come up with these riffs and things you know and um Whereas, say, like, for example, She's Innocent, as you say, I thought, oh, nice, gentle guitar sort of thing, you know. But then you get this bit comes up, you know, where you suddenly get these power chords coming in, guitar power chords, and I'm yelling at the top of my voice, you know. (laughs) You know, so there's quite a lot of um, highs and lows in the song, you know, because I've always liked dynamics, you know. Whenever you talk to uh, drummers and people like that, you know, they talk about dynamics so instead of keeping something at one level i used to think you know it'd be nice you know writing a song where it's got ups and downs in it you know so uh, yeah it's really quite proud of that song actually
By the late 70s, was it that you'd set up a studio and that's how you got involved with the Polecats? Yeah, what it was, I, I'd i always had, had ideas about, you know, like having my own recording studio and um, I thought, uh, well, I'll just start up a little demo, demo studio. So I got the two front bedrooms of the house, you know, and kitted it all out with recording gear and... Uh, the idea was just, you know, to help out a few of the local bands, you know, cheap sort of rates and stuff, you know, and um, and then maybe later on I could go on to something bigger, you know. But um, so all these local bands kept coming in. Um, but then I had a bit of a problem with <laughs> with uh, sort of noise problems, you know, with the neighbours and stuff. So uh, <laughs> Paul Gardner, my, my Pluto colleague, he had a friend who had a garden in Hendon. And uh, he said, oh, you know, you, you can use the shed at the back of the garden if you want. So, oh, great. So we kitted all that out. And um, anyway, we uh, got all that up and running. And um, and then one night, the uh, this rockabilly band came in. And the only youngsters are all, all about sort of 16, you know, 15, 16, 17. And... Uh, and they recorded three demos. One of them was a thing called um, Rockabilly Guy. And now this whole thing was all done in a couple of hours. 
Yeah. We uh, tried to create that rockabilly sound for them, you know, that sort of slapback echo kind of thing. And I think the whole thing cost them about 25 quid or something. Anyway, we uh, <laughs> that's it. They went away, you know, and um, but then a few weeks later, I was um, I was walking around some store and this guy came up. He said, oh, you remember me? I'm, I'm Polcat's manager. It, it turned out that he was a lead singer's dad. He said, uh, that Polcat thing they done at your studio is really doing well, isn't it? I said, I don't know. What, what do you mean? He said, well, it's number one in rock and roll charts. <laughs> I said, oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, he said, yeah, he's, um, they, they've, um, you know, really become really popular and um, and they're now being produced by Dave Edmonds. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, wow, thanks for telling us. <laughs> so um, anyway, they, um, yeah, that done really well. And, um, and then they, by that time, I'd moved back to my own studio back home again the singer would come round and record a few demos at my studio again and um, a couple of the other guys, they would come round as well, you know. And uh, and then Tim, the, um, the lead singer, he said one, he said one night, he said, you're, um, you're coming out on tour with us. You're going to be playing guitar with us. <laughs> I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, yeah, don't want any arguments. I said, oh, really? I mean, you've already got, you know... Uh, you know, you've got a good guitarist there. He said, yeah, he is. He is great, you know, but we want you on it as well. So I thought, well, I'm supposed to be retired. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, I did a few gigs with them. And, uh, and then next minute, the um, Jerry Lee Lewis tour came up. So we oh. went out supporting Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> so, yeah, so we did quite a few, um, quite a few things with them. Change my style. Well, I go to the Rossi and Rock and Brown. 
90s that you'd reactivated the foundations? Uh, it was about 98, I think it was. Uh, a friend of mine came round. He, he used to sort my computer out. He was a bit of a computer whiz. He said, um, there's a film out called There's Something About Mary and your your record's on it. Oh, really? He said, yeah. And he says, really, you know, you should go along and watch it. So, uh, oh, okay. So I went along to uh, the cinema and sure enough there it was all the cast at the end of this film they're all singing <laughs> along to this Bill Me Up Buttercup I thought wow you know <laughs> and so got calls from uh, some of the other members of the band and saying oh what are we going to do about this you know we ought to uh, reform you know and uh, so we all got together and um, we had lead the original singer you know Colin Young myself the original bass player, the another bass player who took over from the original one because, uh, to be honest, he was a lot better. You know, mm-hmm. so um, we thought, yeah, you know, let's, let's uh, that should be enough to go out as the originals again. You know, so uh, yeah. so we got a few other guys in, and um, but the trouble is, Clem Curtis was going around with his lot as well, which he had been going around for a few years going out as Clem Curtis and the Foundations. And now he was the only original one in it, but he never actually sang Build Me Up Buttercup. No. He never sang that. He didn't sing Bad, Bad Old Days or anything, you know. So uh, we thought, oh, well, you know, we'll have to try and probably the, the best thing would be to get the two lead singers together. Let's get Clem Curtis and then he can sing our earlier hits. Mm. And then Colin Young, he can sing Build Me Up Buttercup and the other ones, you know, and that would be... You'll have best of both worlds there. So he said, why don't you two ring each other up and um, discuss it kind of thing, the possibilities, you know, it could be great for us, you know. So but about five minutes into the conversation, they were just at loggerheads with each other and uh, they just didn't want to know. I mean, Clem had his lot, you know, and because uh, he, he already had loads of gigs doing doing his stuff, you know, so... But it's a shame, really, because that would have been the best outcome of all, you know. So, uh, anyway, we we carried on and uh, we managed to get a tour, did a few gigs here and there. Um, but we did actually get on this big tour with uh, Gino Washington and um, Zoot Money. We did that and that was great. You know, that led to a, an Australian tour. So, I went over there for a few weeks, come back from there and... Uh, um, but it was always a bit difficult because of Clem, you see, because the record company by that time, they didn't really, there were all these young guys that didn't really know the history of the foundation. So, uh, I mean, I actually rang up one day and I said, look, you know, you should be, because um, they were putting um, Clem out on on these TV shows, singing Build Me Up Buttercup really terribly. No. And um, and I rang up, I said, look, the original singer was a guy, you know, Colin Young. And they said, no, it wasn't. It was Clem Curtis. I said, it wasn't. I'm the original, you know, no, they wouldn't have it. So anyway, they did actually re-release the single, but they didn't, they didn't 
send enough to the shops. They only put one or two in, you know. And now that would have been a huge hit again. Yeah. If uh, if if they had listened to all of us, you know. And um, it it crawled into the bottom of the chart somewhere, and then just went straight out again because it it just wasn't handled properly at all. And as I say, to compound to make things worse, you had Clem Curtis appearing on these TV shows singing it really badly, and um, you know it's uh, <laughs> blessed. I mean, Clem had a great voice. Don't get me wrong, he was fantastic, great for Baby Out of Found You. I mean, he would have sung that better than Colin Young. Yeah. But when it came to build me up Buttercup, Colin Young was the only guy that could really sing that, you know. So <laughs> just a shame, anyway. But um, anyway, a few years later, here we are. We're we're doing another tour now. So you know, you know, we're, we're going really strong now. So <laughs> yeah, it's all uh, you know, doing doing a lot of theatres and uh, festivals and clubs and things. Uh, it's really, really going really well. Maybe that's one of the themes of the foundations is that that for many people, especially those those hits, is that that they're uplifting yeah, songs yeah. mainly. You've chosen as the final track at any old time, you're lonely and sad, and, and that typifies that positivity that the group has. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I really love that song. It's so catchy, you know, and uh, it's so uh, short and sweet, really. You know, it's. Uh, yeah, any old, definitely one of my favourites, that one. Should have got a lot higher. <laughs> and that's the thing. You were saying it before about the, the dates with the current lineup of the foundations, but you are generally, every time I see you on Facebook, this, you've got all sorts of different projects on the go. You've got, I mean, you've certainly had that grandma's wooden leg and other sorts of things, so you're very active. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's quite a few of those things coming up, and uh, we're doing a few gigs over in L.A., <laughs> wow! It's members of the Grandma's Wooden Leg, and we're we're backing uh, uh, a lead singer over there. Alan, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. What a story! And there's so many different sides that that have been represented. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, great talking to you, Jason. And thanks a lot for uh, you know inviting us on. <laughs> and uh, talk again soon. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, Alan. Yeah, take care, Jason. Bye. Right, bye bye. Bye. I 
without stepping in Just to break the heart of a better man If there's ever a day Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.